0: Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to episode 243 of the Motorcycle Men Podcast. And I got another interview for you. This is another good one. You're going to like this. But before we get to that business, let's take care of some real business. The Motorcycle Man Podcast is brought to you by Scorpion Helmets. Now, Scorpion EXO has been dedicated to offering high-quality, innovative motorcycle helmets and technical apparel at an incredible value. So to learn more, you go to scorpionusa.com. Go check them out. I got two Scorpion helmets, and I love them. They're great. And Shinko Tires, regardless of the type of bike you ride, when it's time for tires for your bike, you want to think o Shinko. That's right. So you go to Shinko Tire USA and you tell them that the motorcycle men sent you. I use Shinko Tires and I could not be happier with their performance. Did an entire ride from New Jersey to Key West on my Shinko Tires. Love them. Great stuff. And of course, if your butt gets tired or sore on a super long ride like that, well, there's only one thing that you should be doing. You should be going to Wild Ass Seats. That's right. Why ride in pain when you can ride in absolute comfort with the help of a wild ass seat cushion? Your back will thank you, and you'll enjoy a mile after a mile of cruising comfort no matter what type of motorcycle you ride. The cushion eliminates painful pressure points which conform to the rider's shape, regardless of the rider's weight or seating position. So go to wild-ass.com. That's wild s.com and order today make sure you tell them that the motorcycle men sent you don't forget that's wild dash s.com w-i-l-d a little hyphen A-S-S dot com. make sure you tell them that we sent you hey the motorcycle men podcast is supporting david's dream and believe cancer foundation if you would like to help and be a part of something that actually makes a difference Donate today to David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation. Go to davidgadreamandbelieve.org to donate. Links will also be in the show notes. And, of course, the Gold Star Ride Foundation. They've been helping families of fallen soldiers and making a difference in the lives of those left behind. So if you'd like to be a part of a great cause and get some heartfelt miles in, go over to goldstarride.org and learn how you can participate in the next Gold Star Ride. And, of course, now you've heard me say it time and time again, and you're probably tired of hearing it, but I am not. This is great stuff. It This is for our, our, our sponsors over at Tobacco Motorwear. Now, tobacco is known for making the best-looking riding jeans in the world, and I'm not kidding. They're really great-looking stuff. I mean, they, they start with premium fabrics like selvedge denim and canvas, and then they add those protective parts like uh, comfortable anti-abrasion linings and, of course, armor. They've got... In their california riding shirt they got this really cool bandana liner it's really really cool it's worth it and the tobacco motorwear makes their jackets the in their riding shirts and you've heard me say before i love my california riding shirt i wear it all the time and of course i love my riding jeans as well i wear them every ride i just won't ride without them not only that you know every time i wear them somebody is going to ask me about them they want to know where i got these great looking jeans And so they're just fantastic. So, and also try out those Roper gloves. I got a pair of those things, you know, and I thought they'd be hot. They are the most comfortable leather riding gloves I could ever ask for. They're wonderful, breathable, soft leather, and the most comfortable gloves you're ever going to wear. And for added protection, go check out the Wasteland Vest. It's really comfortable. It's fantastic. Plenty of pockets, plenty of armor, great addition to wear with your California riding shirt or under your leather jacket for those slightly chilly. No need to sacrifice style for safety. Tobacco Motorwear has both. So go check out Tobacco Motorwear. That's TobaccoMotorwear.com. Again, TobaccoMotorwear.com. And our listeners for the Motorcycle Men podcast will get 10% off your order when you use that coupon code MOTOMEN. All right, now. There are hundreds of bike builders out there, each with their own method, their own style, their own platform, and their own level of experience, know-how, and most of all, purpose. Some bike builders, for some bike builders, it's a form of income. And for others, it's a means of expression. and It's sort of a form of art. And for some, it's a pathway to recognition and perhaps fame and fortune. Then there are those more grassroots kind of bike builders who do it not for any other reason than because. They have a passion for bikes, they have a desire to create or recreate, and they have a respect for these machines that they will devote countless of hours of time to just to hear it eventually and hopefully run. These builders don't seek that fame and fortune. Their goal is the satisfaction of a job well done. My guest today is one such bike builder and an author. The Urban Monk is here to tell us about creating Mr. Corden. All right, boys and girls, here we are, episode 243, and coming from all the way from where are you located?
1: I'm uh, just outside of Los Angeles.
0: Right, just outside of Los Angeles, the Urban Monk. Do we call you Urban?
1: Yes, sure. Okay, <laughs> call me. Um, Mister Monk. Uh, I get a lot of different things, but uh, Urban, um, I'll answer to all of that. All
0: right. Well, Urban is a—he's he, a builder. who does some custom bikes, and he's—he uh, also did a book about a motorcycle that he created. Urban, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's fantastic to be on.
0: Yes, I pr- appreciate you taking a time out from your busy schedule. That I mean, Not that we all have busy schedules at this particular time, but thank you very much for joining. Right. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your motorcycle self and what you do?
1: Well, I think I'm probably like a lot of guys out there. Um, you know, I am just turned 50 this year and Welcome uh, to the club. family. Yeah, thank you. And um, started as a young man. First motorcycle, I was 12 years old when I got a little Suzuki dirt bike and uh, ripped around my neighborhood and brought the Fargo Police Department over there quite a few <laughs> times because some of the neighbors weren't so appreciative of the noise. And the fact that I couldn't seem to keep off the sidewalks, I, I don't know what was wrong with me at the time, but uh, <laughs> Anyway, so I had motorcycles all through high school and in my 20s and then uh, got very involved in the music industry and began to tour up in the upper Midwest and uh, had to get rid of my bikes. I didn't have a place. It was this very mobile lifestyle at the time and um, got away from it and then, you know, met a good woman and started a family and all of this stuff happened. When there wasn't a motorcycle in my possession, but uh, motorcycling never went away, I would go borrow a friend's. I have friends that uh, continued to have bikes and were generous enough to loan me a bike for the weekend. I'd go for a long ride and that kind of thing, but uh, just stayed away from it for, uh, stayed away from ownership, I'll say, for about almost 20 years. Wow, that's
0: a long time to be away from it.
1: It is, and, uh, but all along the way, I've, I'm very me- uh, mechanically inclined. I Early on in my late teens, early 20s, I worked in the automotive parts and service industry and took a lot of industrial arts classes in middle school and high school, and, I, and I'm handy with a wrench and always worked on my own cars and trucks, and when I had motorcycles, I worked on those too, and friends' bikes. And um, I started to get the bug to get back on two wheels and um, also really wanted to keep uh, the financial impact of motorcycling from impacting my family. Sure, yeah, yeah. You know, raising a family is an expensive proposition. And motorcycling is an expensive hobby. It can be, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's uh, the one thing that I'm I'm trying to hang my hat on a little bit is, I found a way back for about as little money as a person could possibly spend. Uh, my my journey back into motorcycling was to buy a used. Uh, 1981 Honda CB900, fully fared with the Honda line uh, fairing. It was the same one they put on the Goldwing. Yeah. And uh, it was it a was really cool old piece of classic history. And it hadn't been run in eight years. The old man that owned it uh, just couldn't ride it anymore. Yeah. And eventually it showed up on Craigslist because his son was helping him sell the thing. And I thought, well, you know, the brakes are all gelled up and locked and the engine hasn't been run. But as long as I can turn it over, yeah. I showed up with a, a portable you know, jumper battery and put some power to it and, and hit the starter button and it turned over. I said, OK, all else is fixable. Yeah. Uh, and frankly, even if the motor stuck, you could un- unstick it and yeah. get that running again. But uh, it's obviously more of a project. Anyways, I bought this bike for five hundred dollars. Wow. And Ew. threw it on. Yeah. And threw it on a trailer and drug the thing that was way up in northern Minnesota. I lived in uh, Minneapolis at the time. Drug it back down to, to Minneapolis threw it in the garage, and in about a month, I was riding the thing all over the place. Aren't
0: those 80s Hondas kind of quirky-looking, though?
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They are, you know. Yeah. There was all kinds of strange things going on with, uh, you know, regulations and tariffs on imported bikes above a certain cc's, and and the result was these pretty quirky motorcycles that were... We're not trying to be a Harley-Davidson, but, okay, we understand Americans want to cruise, and so we better set it up differently than we have been. And they did and made what they think is a cruiser. And, uh, it's just that like
0: many of those bikes from the 80s kind of had that, I don't know, maybe maybe it was just this thought of futuristic or something, but they all had this a lot of rectangular shapes and a lot of, yeah. a lot of very angular, you know? Yeah. <laughs> So when they you were, you know, when nothing was smooth lines back then. So when you look back on it now, you think, wow. I mean, of course, then we thought it was cool.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. now you
0: look back on it and you go, that's kind of weird,
1: you know, but oh, um, they are. you go on Craigslist and you can buy a Honda line <laughs> fairing for 10 bucks.
0: <laughs> so what do you ride now?
1: So now I have my everyday bike, as I call it, uh, is a Suzuki b Oh, yeah. Which is great bike. a wonderful do-anything bike. It, yes. it's, uh, it's not great yeah. at anything. It's just good at everything. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like we well, we'll talk about it in a minute, but that's like the jack of all trades, master and none kind of a thing, right? <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> you no. Know? Well, uh, uh, which What size engine does that have? Is that the, uh,
1: the guy? I got the thousand.
0: You got the thousand, okay, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I'm happy that I do because uh, when I moved from Minneapolis down here to Los Angeles, traffic you you got to keep up.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah.
1: I I mean, the cars are all going 80 miles an hour. So, and of course, on a motorcycle, you need to be going just a little faster than the cars to keep yourself (laughs) in that safe zone, right? Exactly. What year is it? So anyways, uh, it's a 2012, which was the last year of the first gen. Yeah. And they had uh, worked out some of the bugs there. I still ended up putting a Power Commander fuel uh, control module in it. to. That first generation had this issue with, uh, backfiring in a lean condition at uh, low RPMs, and the the uh, power commander just solves that in a second. Yeah. And, and it really rides nice now after I put that in.
0: You taking so. it off road yet?
1: Uh, not much. Uh, my tires are well. So I should mention I am a huge fan of Shinko seven hundred five <laughs> tires, and it's all I run on that bike. Great. Um, but they are, you know, about a. 20% off-road, and 80% street tires. Yeah. So pretty much what that means is if you want to go up a service road, you know, fire a fire road, or gravel, uh, you're in good shape. But true off-roading, that's not the right tire for it. And Shinko does have another more knobby tire for that yeah. application. But um, for the most part, uh, I'm on the street, and I'll get on gravel roads and that kind of thing.
0: Well, you're in, yeah, you're in Southern California, so you have lots of opportunity for that kind of stuff.
1: I mean, it's year-round riding. Yeah. And God bless it, it. and the roads here are. I've been blessed to be able to ride some of the the greatest roads in America, and but a lot of them are right here. Yeah. And I can just head out on the weekend and do some amazing rides, and uh, it's it's really the motorcycle promised land of, of the United States. Yeah.
0: Funny thing about that is you can ride year-round, but but now you can't. <laughs> Right. 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 Uh, It's the strangest
1: thing. But, you know, the the, having been uh, living in the Northland for so many years, you get used to this cycle of ride your ass off. And then you've got this time to take care of your bike all winter. and, And you get that every winter. Yeah. And um, you kind of get to where you rely on having that. And here, you're just riding and riding and riding, and you start saying to yourself, wait a minute, I have to do some maintenance yeah. here, but I got that ride coming up, and yeah. this guy's coming to visit, right. and when yeah. am I going to do this? And it's like maintenance. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, right. I got yeah, yeah. to do that. I got to do that. Hey, you want to go for a ride?
1: Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. At least, you know, when you take your bike completely apart in, in the winter up in the Northland, Uh, Your friends aren't calling you to ride because the weather's bad. Because they're
0: doing the same thing,
1: right. They're doing the exact same thing. Their bike's on the lift.
0: Yeah, wow. Urban Monk, tell us about the name.
1: So it goes back to 1986. Uh, I had just purchased my first street bike after having owned that little Suzuki dirt bike for a few years. And uh, I got a Honda CX500, the, the custom, so the cruiser configuration of that bike. But it was a V-twin, and I loved it. It sounded great, just, you know, smaller and um, it, it perfect bike for a 16-year-old boy to be running around Fargo, North Dakota. And... Um, of course, my buddies, my dear friend from back then, a guy named Rodney, who I mention in my book a lot because he and I really came to fall in love with motorcycles together. Yeah. And we're still friends to this day. Uh, he ri- He lives in North Carolina now. He flies here. We rent, bike, and, and ride up the California One up through Big Sur to Carmel, uh, California, and go to the Quail Motorcycle Gathering and see some of the rarest of the rare the most beautiful bikes uh you can ever imagine come to that that show on the on the beautiful lawns of uh, the quail lodge and golf club it, it's featured wow. in magazines every year but um anyway so he's still in my life he got a bike and then my other good friend from back then he had to get a bike and my brother got a bike and that made four of us well four that's like a gang you know <laughs> so we gotta have a name, and. Somehow I came up with this idea we were kicking names around and I put the word urban and monk together and I just liked the sound of it. And so I wish that there was some, you know, greater story to it. Other than <laughs> I've been kicking that name around for 35 years, 36 years, um, and, and I've just have just always had it in, in a, a place in my life. Yeah. So, yeah. That's where it comes from. We were the urban monks. And, uh, uh, you know, I mentioned that in the book. Is it weird to do like a, a excerpt from the book? No, not at that? all. Not at all. Here, I'll read that. Well, we're
0: going to talk about that in a second. So your book, which is Creating Mr. Cortan.
1: Yeah. Um, well, tell us about the book. Okay, so you know, I built this bike, and over the course of uh, was doing it on the mornings and weekends, again, back to not trying to impact my family in sure. a negative way by being a motorcyclist um, and trying to find that balance, uh, I have two daughters and a wife, so I live with three women, and <laughs> I that, means that, that means my time is early in the morning. Yeah. Uh, because they're all sleeping in and so on saturday and sunday mornings i would go to what i've often called man church and go out to the garage yep and uh, find my peace and find my center and put that wrench in my hand and uh over three and a half years it took me almost three years and five months to complete this bike because i completely tore it down and tore the engine apart and had to replace uh, a piston that had a hole in it and uh and then you know while you're in there you might as well do a lot of other things (laughs) and then on top of it i was customizing it and so um it just took a lot of time and i painted it myself and um came up with I think a beautiful finish but there's no rushing that and yeah. then because I don't have a paint booth and all of the stuff that you really need to have to, to do it professionally uh, you're, you you got to wait on the weather to cooperate yep. and if it's even too windy you know you you got to wait so it took a long time to do it and the whole time I was looking in the corner of my shop there was this little metal table that I had made in eighth grade metal shop class from uh, one of those industrial arts classes I mentioned earlier, and looking at that thing, thinking that was when I first started to bend metal and weld and consider the, the prepping my surface before I paint it, and all of these things. And that was that was really the impetus of where I am now, taking this bike apart, which. I realize for a lot of people, not everyone, but and, and I don't pretend to be the world's expert here in any way, shape, or form, but for a lot of people, tearing a motorcycle down to its smallest bolt and component is a daunting task. And sure. that, yeah, and that's not lost on me, that, that that's kind of a, a big deal to a lot of folks. And I got to thinking about the the teacher that taught that class who assigned that metal table to me. And He was a character. He was, um, he joked with us. He was always in a good mood, and uh, he treated us like friends. But, um, you know, here's an anecdote. So, he had a a unique way of teaching. He was teaching us about internal combustion engines and spark plug and ignition, in particular. And one of the assignments was to take a small Briggs and Stratton you know, flathead, single cylinder engine apart, put it back together, you know, do some measurements of piston ring gap and, and uh, a few other things before you put it back together. And, and it was a simple pass-fail grade. If he pulled the ripcord and that thing started, you passed. If it didn't, you failed. And, but he's explaining the ignition, the magneto ignition uh, to the class. And there's about 20 of us in this classroom He gets us all circling around one of the workshop tables and one student at the beginning of the chain around the table, this circle, grabs uh, with his hand the spark plug lead and then with his other hand holds the hand of the next student next to him and, and around we're all holding hands in a circle. And the last student in the chain, Mr. Corton instructs him to put his hand on the base of the crankcase of this engine. And Mr. Corton has his hand on the ripcord, and he's explaining, okay, when that magnet's going by, it's creating this field, and the electrons come flying out of this thing, and you get like 250,000 volts, and we're all taking this in, and without warning, he just yanks that ripcord, and simultaneously, 20 of us all (laughs) leap back at the same time, (laughs) because we all got one hell of a jolt. Yeah. uh, Been there, done that. (laughs) Yeah, and we laughed about it and uh, thought, man, that's really something. But, you know, it was 1984. Nobody thought that, hey, this is not right. We just thought that was the coolest thing ever. And five of us wanted to do it again.
0: Right.
1: (laughs) So uh, he was that kind of teacher. And big smile and laughing the whole time he was doing stuff like that. And uh, I actually connected with him recently around this book because I did need his permission to use his photograph in it. And um, he told me another anecdote about a kid who had these long, his jeans were too long and they're, he's been walking on them and they're frayed at the bottom and he's going into, behind the welding booth. And he had mentioned you shouldn't be welding with those pants on, but the kid got in there anyways. And he comes out and his pants are on fire down on the cuff <laughs> and Mr. Corton just takes the bucket of water that he's got there for you know cooling hot parts that you just welded and tosses it on his pants and soaks his shoe and puts the whole thing out. But it was that kind of classroom all the time. You yeah. Know? And great memories. Uh, this guy gave decades of his life to teaching a whole bunch of young guys and gals uh, in Fargo, North Dakota, uh, how to work with their hands and how to be creative and how to uh conceive of a plan and measure things accurately and and then execute on that plan in and and manifest something in the physical realm a bunch of nothing yeah and you know i ended up going into a completely different line of work but i i had built a business that was in the food and beverage industry and I had to design a process that would create millions of bottles of this beverage, and do it in a safe way uh, to keep bacteria from growing or any sort of uh, uh, adulteration to get into the product, and and pass you know the FDA and the Minnesota Department of Health, and that meant welding stainless steel and thinking about fittings and creating a process yeah. and. Those same parts of my brain that built that metal table and got exercised in eighth grade, and and nurtured some by Mr. Corton, ended up being a a, a foundational part of me building a business later in life that right. you know I support my family with, and uh, that's huge. And that that's the power of teaching. And I thought that that somebody there's a story to that. And now here I am building this bike and I'm doing it on YouTube, which we haven't even gotten to the the part of the project was the bike. The other part of the project was share every nut and bolt and every torque spec and everything I did with others. And do it on YouTube, and so uh, that—that's also part of the story. And I thought I gotta—I gotta write this down. And I sat down at my computer, and like a month and a half later, uh, there was enough meat there to where then I had to finish it, and uh, the book was created. So,
0: well, you—you yeah. want to share that little anecdote that you had about the uh, about the name?
1: Yeah. So, this book is. I would say forty percent memoir of the build of the bike, right? And and you know decisions I made, uh, why I built the bike the way I did, right. why I bought the bike that I bought, how I bought it, those kinds of things. But it's also about forty percent memoir of growing up in Fargo, North Dakota, in the seventies and eighties, and how. In a place that's frozen more than half the year, uh, <laughs> I got into motorcycling of all things. And yeah. I know if you got any, you know, listeners in Winnipeg, Canada, they'd say, "Well, of course he did." <laughs> but um, uh, let me read an excerpt here, if this sure. is okay. Go right ahead. Uh, so at this point, I had gotten my first street bike. During this time, other friends were beginning to buy motorcycles too. No surprise that Rodney soon followed me into the larger displacement street bike world. He bought a 1978 CB550 with rusted-out exhaust pipes for $895 at University Motors. Uh, As an aside, University Motors was the north side of Fargo's Japanese motorcycle dealership, and it was near North Dakota State University, thus the name. The rusty exhaust made it sound mean and it would make a cool popping sound when Rodney decelerated. We were ignorant of the fact that this was a result of a lean condition in the fuel to air mixture due to the increased airflow from the rusted out exhaust and perhaps a leak in the airbox or the intake boots. Those lessons came later. (laughs) My good friend Bob purchased a 1980 Honda CB750 Custom, And as I mentioned earlier, having my CX parked in front of our house influenced my brother to purchase a smaller CM 250 custom. There were four of us and we took it upon ourselves to give our newbie motorcycle gang a name, the Urban Monks. Uh, The name, oh, this is interesting. The name uh, was my intellectual offspring and I honestly don't know how I conceived of it. I just thought it sounded cool. We gave each other nicknames that tended to come from movies we liked at the time. Bob's was Bluto, after Jim Belushi's character in Animal House. (laughs) Rodney's was Jake, another of Jim Belushi's characters, Jake Blues of the Blues Brothers. My brother was D-Day from Animal House. Uh, My nickname also came from Animal House. As I was tall and skinny, they called me Stork. I can't say I was too fond of it, but one doesn't get to choose these things. <laughs> so. That's where Urban monk came from.
0: Oh, there you go. That's great. <laughs> Isn't it great to have memories like that, though? Yeah. Right? You know? Yeah. And even things like you, you mentioned, um, industrial arts. And it's a shame that is, that's not available to kids today.
1: I couldn't agree more. And I hope that, you know, I mentioned 40% memoir, 40% memoir. Well, that leaves 20%. That's the other piece of this book is I, I really want this story to be a defense of the power of industrial arts education sure. in public schools. Um, I think they got a bad rap back in uh, you know, the 90s when I was coming out of high school, I could kind of sense it. Um, of course, school budgets were being cut. And at the same time, there was a kind of a, a, a line of thinking that was brewing in America that industrial arts education was in some way pigeonholing young people into a life of servitude in the trades, and that we were doing them a disservice in some way, which I talk about in the book as, as how elitist and awful an opinion that is. Sure. Sure. And uh, I think the example I use in the book is, one, not everybody wants to grow up to be a doctor or a lawyer or a manager or whatever. I mean it, that is just a fact. And to say that, then someone like who takes up welding as a career is somehow lesser than someone that takes up uh, medical profession is elitist and and just wrong, and I believe it's archaic, and if you are a patient who needs surgery and you're going into a hospital, to you, who's going to lie on that table, that surgery table, you have value coming from the doctor who's doing the procedure on you. Yeah. But isn't it just as valuable to you to know, and you don't even have to think about it, but the value is still there, to know that the welds on that stainless steel table were done correctly and in a way so that they will not harbor bacteria or any, anything else growing in them. And you know that table is part of the grand scheme of, of the successful result of your surgery. They're both equally valuable, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and there, there is yeah, a lot ahead.
0: of there is a lot of pressure on. Well, certainly, like you said, in the late '90s through the 2000s, a lot of pressure on kids to go to college to get a college yeah. education. Yeah. When we we everybody's learning much too late. Is that hey you know the trades is really where you could be and much happier actually and yeah. not have as much debt
1: right and get right to work and yes. get right to work creating value for society which is what we do want is people having purpose in life and creating value for other people that's that's what a civilization is built on <laughs>
0: Right, not only societal uh, value but personal
1: self-worth absolutely you know it's very absolutely. important because look um,
0: I've been working in corporate America now for over 30 years and nothing pleases me more than to get up and go outside and do some manual labor. Yeah. Whether if it's yeah. working on my bike or working in the yard, that's far more satisfying
1: to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So. And you mentioned corporate America. I went on to I went on to college and and did that whole route and worked for companies that manufactured things, yeah. uh, industrial and commercial floor cleaning equipment with hydrostatic drives and. Welded steel frames that are powder-coated and they have computer controls and they have internal combustion engines or they have battery drives even hybrid drive machines and What did we struggle the most as a company is finding people in the United States that can build these things the, the welders the fabricators the machinists were so difficult to find and when we did Man, they were making really good salaries in that that company, and better than a lot of us up in the marketing department. I'll, I'll say that.
0: Well, do, you, do you see Do you see a, a a turn coming in that more people are going to start turning to these trades and industrial? You 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 think that's going to come back?
1: I hope so. Um, I honestly think that this uh, COVID nineteen situation we're going through right now is going to change a lot of things oh, and sure. this we're already what well, you mentioned going to college and that was like everybody's got to go to college and then rack up all this debt that conversation was already starting about wait a minute are we what are we doing to these kids sending them into 100,000 200,000 dollars worth of debt at the beginning of their careers and then paying them peanuts when the welder is going to start at a higher salary right out of the gate and uh, now my kids are at home doing their schoolwork online, and I just—this is rumor, so don't please don't quote Urban Monk on this is happening. But a friend who lives out east is saying that Harvard University is thinking about all online coursework next year. Rumor, but yeah, still, but, you know, people are thinking about it. It's like, why yeah. do we go to these facilities that have high costs? And dormitories and cafeterias and all this support around bringing the students to the classroom when they can go right to their laptop anywhere in the world. And so one,
0: one word is the answer for that. Tradition.
1: Right, right. Just legacy. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly yeah. right.
1: Now, in your book,
0: of course, we were talking about the, you know, being of a jack of all trades type of thing. You yeah. kind of described yourself or you were described as some sort of a, a renaissance man you know the jack yeah. of all trades uh do you do you find that d- well did that work for you or against you when you were doing this project
1: Certainly on this project it worked for me um because I had to do a lot of different things uh from you know machining to working with fiberglass which I I have not done that before and yeah. that was that was more art and sculpting than it was uh, you know, measurements and piston ring gap and that—that and that I was a lot more comfortable with in the engine, um, and then painting and and uh, you know, but also design and the idea behind. Well, how? What is this going to look like when I'm done? Because I could put a lot of effort into it, and I think well, go on Craigslist and just look at any. Put in your search criteria of less than a thousand dollars, but more than fifty bucks, and. <laughs> You will find all these projects that guys started but didn't finish, yeah. and they look like these awful hermaphrodites, you know, that just, like, this is not working here. And um, design was a very big piece. And I, uh, I, I have a bit of a history of start studying art, and for no reason other than I just like it. Um, it's not something that ever tied into my profession, but... Um, the design was very much a part of what I was doing. And uh, I think I was successful with the result. But um, yeah, you know, I think we live in a world that for a long time has tried to really financially reward specializing. And I, I think for a lot of people, specializing is very good for them because a lot of people are really wired well for one thing. I just happen to be really wired for a lot of different things. Yeah. And um, I was one of those guys that when he did go to college, I didn't declare a major for the first two years because I I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was interested in all of it. And <laughs> but only to a point, you know, yeah, and eventually I uh, well, it doesn't matter why or how I got through college. But, um, yeah, I, I can do a lot of things now. It helped with the bike project, and then I ended up being an entrepreneur later, and as a small business owner, uh, it was absolutely helpful to be a jack-of-all-trades, because you end up wearing every hat. Sure, yeah. You just take all the hats in a big company and put them on one guy and scale it all down, and that's how that works, you know, that small business.
0: Wow. Do you find that, uh, I mean, I know with me, because I'm the same way, you know, does your does your span well, of attention? Long. Does your span of attention get in the way? Because like you have this interest in this one in particular. Well, like, oh, I've learned how to do this. Oh, that's great. Okay. Ooh, what's that over there? Now all of a sudden, I, now you're on something else.
1: Yeah, I absolutely think that that has been a theme throughout my life. And as I've aged, I've realized that the way that works for me is to, you know, uh, you're. The upside of it is you get so obsessed about certain things yeah, that yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You, you, you touch on something because you're trying everything, and eventually you touch on something that just infects you and you can't think of anything but it, and you have endless energy and passion for it. And um, I have done a lot of those things in my life, and they never we're financially rewarding, but I've learned to recognize them now and then say, okay, well, then I'm going to focus what I'm doing on this because to be successful, you have to have that passion and that endless energy
0: and that focus.
1: <laughs> yeah. And the focus. And so, um, I just kind of go with what is tickling my fancy and, and for others around me, it's, it's difficult for them to live with that because, Um, they just say, Hey, wait a minute. You were, you were successful over here making foods and beverages and now you want to do motorcycles. What, why, why would you jump that ship now? And because I don't want to do it anymore. And and because I don't want to do it anymore, I'm probably not going to be successful with it.
0: (laughs) Well, tell us about the bike project that that you embarked on and what led you to choose that particular bike and tell us what you chose.
1: So, yeah, back to obsession and uh, just, you know, a focus on one thing that I could not let go of. Um, I was looking at motorcycles and I I kept coming across uh, these cafe racers and and as I looked further at it, I I saw that there was really a global movement around these things and there are some... uh, big-name builders out there around the world that have have made this something that's going to stick. And I, I know it had a long-storied history back to the cafes of uh, post-war Britain and the sure. young pun-up boys who uh, just, you know, just what they were doing with their time. Uh, but somehow my introduction to it was the music video in the 80s when I was a kid. Uh, Aha! Take on me was that... <laughs> you know, yeah. uh cartoon themed kind of uh, video, but it was Cafe Racer themed. And I thought, what is that? And it was kind of cool. Um, anyways, so I got hooked into the idea that, hey, you know, I could build one of these and I, I'm looking for something to do in the garage. So, all right, if I was to build one, how would I do it? And I spent a lot of time researching other people's builds and what they were doing. And the difference between a cafe racer and a scrambler or a barber or, a, uh, you know, in Japan, they got that crazy uh, Bososuko fairings up here and big sissy bars. And, you know, it's all over the map. But cafe racers were speaking to me and I began to formulate a plan of how I would do that. And so I said, OK, well, what's cool to me, I, I I like the idea of a little bike. Um, there's something just neat about a smaller frame and being low, and, and racers typically are. They're not, they don't sit tall, you know. Yeah. And uh, you get down and get out of the wind and go as fast as you can. And um, you know, I'm six foot one and and weigh something. And I thought, well, I better have something with at least a, a decent amount of power to, so I can have some fun on it. So I was thinking. Something in the 45, 50 horsepower range would be fun for me, and anything less than that, I might just get bored with it once I <laughs> am done and yeah. have to ride it. But I didn't want to create some big heavy monster either. And uh, and then kickstart. There's nothing cooler or sexier than kickstarting a motorcycle. So you know going in that you wanted a kickstart bike. I want a kickstart. I'm not even going to look at bikes without a kickstart at that that's brave. Yeah, and then the other thing is, uh, well, th- this bike does have electric start too. Oh. Okay. But <laughs> I, yeah, but I needed to have the option to kick it just to look cool, and um, the other piece was carburation. So you know, the EPA came up with uh, ever stricter uh, emissions regulations in the late seventies, going into the early eighties, and the normally aspirated engines and motorcycles of the time, uh, were just pretty much straight up what they call slide carbs. And those are pretty easy for the garage guy to tune. Um, but EPA made it so that, Hey, you know, we don't want so many hydrocarbons emitted when you're giving it gas and, you know, you pour all of this gasoline in there, but the air isn't there to match it yet. And slide carbs just can't keep up. So they came up with the uh, constant volume uh, carburetors or CV carbs. And those are a lot more finicky to mess around with the engineering behind air intake and the air flow through them. Uh, you know, how fuel is delivered when you twist that throttle. We think of carburetors as I got a cable on my right hand, I twist that thing, it pulls open a slide, and a bunch of gas and air goes in. Well, it, it, almost. But um, with CV carbs, it has all to do with the airflow through that Venturi and any changes to that can make it a nightmare trying to get the thing to be tuned properly later on. And you see that again with guys out on the Internet who have bought some 82, whatever, and then they put the little pod filters on it because they like the look of it, but they can't get it to run right. Well, they've messed with the airflow through that carburetor. And so um, I wanted slide carbs, not CVs. And so that put me pre-79, the CVs came into play. And so I wanted to go pre-79. My experience has been with Japanese bikes. And I know from my experience that they tend to cost a lot less. And so back to my mission of keeping the financial impact of my hobby uh, away from impacting my family. I sure. thought, yeah. you know, I'm going to do this on a budget. And then that became a challenge in and of itself. How cool and how nice of a motorcycle can I make without just throwing endless money at it? Uh, which a lot of people do, too. They they kind of, I mean, I think all of us have an addiction to some level with motorcycles. And we just, we get the magazines and we're on the websites and we're consuming, consuming, consuming um, the brands and the industry and everything that they're kicking out all the time. Right. Uh, and, and there is, uh, just like my wife and going to the mall and my kids shopping for clothing and shoes. We get the same way, man. We just I gotta have it. I gotta have it. And well, we don't have to. Have no, it. we don't have to. We you want know, it. We <laughs> want it. Right. Right. And so, um, I just thought I'm going to set a really, really tight budget on this thing. And every single decision i make is going to be a compromise between while well, it has to function but um it doesn't have to be the top of the line fancy name part or you it's know be I cost need, effective
0: right
1: cost effective i don't need brembo brakes i'll stick with the brakes that suzuki designed for this thing and i don't need uh uh you know i don't know i mean i don't want to go bashing on anybody's brand because right. let's I, face I brembo brakes work really well Yeah. So. Anyway. so
0: what did you end up picking what bike was it
1: i picked a 1978 suzuki gs 550 with kickstart and slide carbs makuni vm 22 slide carbs and uh it's a four cylinder so four-cylinder. <laughs> yeah wow. but really small, you know really small little pistons that are i believe 50 55 millimeter across each of those pistons and uh it could be 65. Anyways, I forget now. And it sounds like a, like a loud uh, Formula One car or something. It's got this really cool sound to it. If, if people want to go on my YouTube channel, there's a couple of videos recently where I, I ride it and you get to hear the thing and, as I uh, tear up the street.
0: What condition it, was it in when you first saw it?
1: Well, uh, pretty rough. It had dents in the gas tank, but nothing too deep that I couldn't fill and um but the in the inside of the tank was rust free which of course is a critical thing sure and then um it had scratches on the side of the engine because it had been down at some point along the line and uh what else about it back tire was trash uh but it was running and that was that's, that a, was that's pretty- a plus it was a plus, it had a really loose linkage on the gear shift, and so that felt very sloppy, but I, I recognized right away that all that slop I was feeling was not something internal to the transmission, sure. it was, uh, you know, cause I mean, you, you start worrying about the uh, the forks, the shifting forks, and whether they're worn, but uh, I could see that it was just the linkage outside and then I would just repair that part, but uh, the gal that sold it to me I don't know when I when I got there. I was just kind of turned on by this bike even more, just because of the seller. She was female, which I was not expecting. And uh, one of the big brands in custom motorcycles is a company called. They're out of Australia. They're called Deus Ex Machina, and they have a flagship corporate store here in Los Angeles, in Venice. Oh, okay, uh, cool. Your Venice Beach. And uh, what that place is, it's a moto-themed uh, coffee shop, deli, and motorcycle store, essentially. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> but then there's also a shop in there, and one of our world's uh, most accomplished custom builders, a guy named Mike Woolaway, is, he's the guy. And he's in there building custom bikes, and you can buy one of these custom bikes for a lot of money. Um, But they're they're gorgeous. And uh, he's one of the three kind of three biggies living here in Los Angeles area. The others would be Roland Sands and Max Hazan. And uh, those three guys are just kind of uh, legends around here. And anyways, uh, this gal comes walking. Uh, This is in St. Paul, Minnesota, mind you. I'm not anywhere near Los Angeles or Venice Beach when when I'm looking at this bike and she comes out of the house. And uh, pretty attractive girl, kind of reminded me of Cher. And uh, she had a keychain hanging out of her pocket that said just four letters, Deus. And I recognized it right away because in the Midwest, um, everything motorcycle tends to be Harley Davidson right. and and big big V twins, and that's great. But you know, Deus is a whole different vein. And to see that in, uh, in the Midwest was, it stood out to me. And I asked her about the key chain. She said, I used to work there and I, I lived in Los Angeles. And I thought, okay, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm looking at buying a motorcycle from a bona fide Los Angeles moto maiden who worked at Deus Ex Machina. Like this is starting to get a pedigree to me that I, I just love it. And if this isn't a complete piece of junk, um, I'm liking the history here. And uh, it wasn't. I mean, I I was able to fire the bike up eventually and take it for a little ride up and down the street and get it as high as fourth gear and know that I'm not dealing with any real serious transmission problem. And uh, if you got a runner, uh, you know, a lot of a, a lot is done for you already. Sure. Now, that being said, I, I rode it around. I knew I was going to be moving to Los Angeles shortly after that and uh, because of the sale of my business. And so I didn't dive into it then because moving a motorcycle in a box is, you know, parts all broken apart. I was going to lose something. You know that <laughs> Exactly. is to, oh, Sorry, I don't know. There was an engine? And um, so I, I left the bike together. I rode it around Minnesota a little bit. But I got it down here, and one of the first events I had time for was this long ride. Uh, It's called the Distinguished Gentleman's Ride. Yes, yes. Yeah, and uh, the Los Angeles ride was a big one. There was well over 200 bikes there, and um, just quite a string of riders. And we went through downtown Los Angeles, up Santa Monica Boulevard, into Beverly Hills and Hollywood, and uh, right past Man's Chinese Theater where all the tourists are there looking at the, uh, the stars in the sidewalk. And here comes this string of bikes and the cameras are out. And, but it was brutally hot that day. Yeah. Uh, California had been in like a five-year drought and it was triple-digit temperatures. And I'm riding the bike slow and it's an air-cooled engine. And then uh, I got through the ride fine, but on the way home... Uh I was given it quite a bit to keep up with Los Angeles traffic and it is only a five fifty and uh probably doing eighty five miles an hour, you know, <laughs> on a five fifty. It's it's humming.
0: It's complaining.
1: Yeah. And all of a sudden I've power is just bogging and I look behind me and there is a smoke trail that, you know, made the the Yamaha R D that I was following. Or no, not an RD, that's a Kawasaki. Um mm-hmm. yeah, no, it is a Yamaha, I'm sorry. But that two-stroke I was following just was nothing compared to the smoke I was putting out now. And I uh, had to get off the interstate and take uh, the the surface roads and got myself home. And uh, after a little investigation, it was pretty clear I had burnt a hole through one of the pistons. And <laughs> so wow. no time like the present to start a project, you know. Yeah. I just started taking it apart, but I grabbed my camera and documented every single bit of it to put on the YouTube channel because I was thinking, well, okay, so that's another thing, uh, if, if you don't mind me talking about it. Go ahead. Here, Mr. Corton had given so much of his time trying to inspire us to be creative and work with our hands and build something out of metal and paint and rivets and welding and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, I'm going to do this thing, it's going to happen what if that was available to all these younger guys out there who don't have the benefit of growing up the way I did, where there's tools in the garage and the expectation that you would go ahead and pick them up and start turning some bolts on your car, or your engine. Yeah. Uh, you know, just not doing that today. And But uh, the millennial generation, I think, gets a bad rap. Uh, I, I think – from what I can see, about half of them really are quite interested in the way things used to be before the internet came around and and have a real appreciation for what they just simply call retro. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, well, if there's any hope for motorcycling, um, you know, we got to get some of these guys into it and what can I do to help, you know? Every everything is local, right? So, I just thought I'm going to start a channel and share this build, but I'm going to try to do something different. There's a lot of channels out there where guys are showing their build, but it's really the fluff, and you don't really see what I'm doing, and I don't give you the torque spec, and and boom, there it's together, and I did that. I thought, no, I, I really want to do something where you get the detail you need to do this bike exactly the way I did it, uh, if you want to or do your own thing but all that detail is there to make sure that you've got some confidence going in that you'll get it running sure. and you'll get it back on the road and i've had a lot of guys tell me uh, since then hey i went out and bought a gs 550 or a gs 750 or whatever and i dove in or i got a honda cb 550 or whatever and they're young guys yeah that uh, Twenty something and they or they're asking me where should I go buy a set of you know m- metric open-end wrenches like they're that that's they're starting at the basics yeah and I thought this is amazing yeah
0: go do it that'd be great and you know I think one interesting things is about doing this is that you had aside from the tools you have in your garage you also have the tool of the internet to help yeah. you through this too yeah yeah. Which is yeah. fortunate for a lot, for everybody today. Cause when you think about guys in the nineties and eighties, you didn't have
1: that. Yeah. You know, well, I mentioned Bob in the book, uh, yeah. one of the urban monk guys, he ended up, uh, becoming, a uh, he's a doctor now and, uh, works at the pathology department at Henry Ford hospital in Detroit. And he got into biology in high school and we had to learn everything we could cause I was his roommate. About biology, because he was into it, and we became early home brewers, and this was pre-internet, and I talked to him about it all the time, where everything we could learn about brewing beer was coming out of the back of some weird magazine or a book from the library, and, you know, it's like written in pencil, and, uh, it, you know, it, the internet today has made that entire industry just explode. Sure, sure. Yeah, and the craft the craft beers. I mean, there wouldn't be Sam Adams without, you know, those <laughs> those guys <laughs> like me. He was only just a few years ahead of Bob and I. Wow.
0: So now the, so you so you decided you wanted to build a cafe racer from the onset. That was your thing. Did you have a specific plan as you how, what what you were going to attack first?
1: Uh not necessarily. Well, yeah, the engine. I mean, I had to fix that engine. Yeah, right? yeah, So that's that's the the heart of the ship. That's the engine room of the ship. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I wanted to get the engine out and repair it. And then the engine took over a year because of the no way I painted Yeah. Oh. I mean, again, this is just a few hours on Saturday, Sunday mornings sure. each week. So, um you know, the number of hours, and then the other pieces I'm videotaping all of it. So, okay, I'm gonna take the valve cover off and pull off the two cams. Just me and my wrenches, that's gonna take about 10 minutes with the camera and then editing it later and set it up, get my light set and okay, yeah. can they see this? Is it blurry? You know, it just getting the valve cover off is a half hour or more.
0: <laughs> now of all the of all the components of the motorcycle, you know, the electrical, the body work, mechanical frame, etc. Was there any particular part that you were at all apprehensive about diving into?
1: The fiberglass seat. Really? Was the most if- yeah, yeah. Um, I've been around engines and electrical stuff since I was so young that none of that intimidates me. Um, but the that forming that fiberglass seat and having it come out perfectly smooth and uh, without a warp in it and all that uh, was so much more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Really? And it's it's really an art form, and it's something I'm really anxious to try again and uh, with the next project. Um, but yeah, that was the the part that was the most difficult for me. And of all the things on the bike, it's the part that, you know, I know the little, the little things that are wrong with it. It's the seat for me. It does have a little bit of a twist to it. I don't like the way it's mounted and it's just not perfect. And, um, so that bugs me and I want to get back to it.
0: (laughs) So it's one of those things where you're done but you're yeah. not done. Yeah. So right. You, right. What, so you're just one of those things that you're gonna you're gonna correct.
1: Maybe. Yeah. Maybe, you know, I in the music business, there's I recorded albums back in the nineties that I listen to today, and I'm a drummer, and there's a drum fill that I just drugged the tempo a I little bit mean. and it drives me crazy. <laughs> I listen to it, you know. But it's a snapshot in time of who I was at that time. Yeah. I know I'm a better drummer now. Fine. And we'll leave that what it is. And maybe yeah. I'll leave what it is. That's a snapshot of what I was as a fiberglass worker at the time, and I'll get better at it.
0: I got a little story for you. Is, um, you know who Frank Frazetta is? I don't. Well, Frank Frazetta is a, is a, uh, world renowned artist. He did the, he's most known for the album covers he did for Molly hatchet
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that was Ooh, I got a story his... there. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, he has a uh, well, he passed away, uh, a number a couple of years ago, but he has a, uh, an art museum. He' has a, uh, up here in Pennsylvania, close to where I live. and my brother and uh, my uh, wife had and I we had gone. And uh, Frank uh, at the time lived right next to the gallery, on the property. And they okay. told and he would go in there, and they told us he would go in. they forbade him to come into the gallery anymore, because he would go in there. And he would want to change his paintings
1: yeah, because he was (laughs)
0: unhappy with the way it says that's been bothering me for decades. I need to change that. (laughs) So this is the same kind of thing where, you know, you want to go back and modify it because you're not happy with it. And I I guess that that seat's going to be something that's going to haunt you for a while, too.
1: Maybe, maybe, you know, I'm I'm the only one that can see the imperfection in it. But uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, Yeah. I don't know. And now, then life happens, and, you know, yeah. there, if I get another bike on this lift, watch me not go back to that seat, because I'll this be obsessed true. with that project, you yeah. know, yeah. Did
0: you <laughs> Now, with regard to the seat, did you do all your sewing on that as well?
1: Okay, so uh, I didn't. That was the other part of my mission plan here for this bike, was do everything myself, and the one exception to that is... The upholstery and the sewing on that, uh, and I—I I went back and forth in my mind of whether I should do it or not. But Rodney, who I mentioned from the book, he went on to become uh, a sailor and uh, lives in North Carolina, as I had mentioned earlier, and he has a company making sails really? and and repairing like uh, canvas. Um, the name of his company is Allison Sales and Canvas in, in North Carolina. And uh, he's a master with a sewing machine on a kind of big scale. Uh, but he's got sewing machines that can put a thick needle through some tough canvas and, and fabric. And he said, let me do that seat for you. I said, all right. And, and I didn't seem like I was straying from my mission of do it myself. If I had my dear friend from childhood, who is an expert at this, uh, to have him have, you know, his touch on it, because he was there when I bought that first bike, you know, and... I thought that was all right, and he put his little tag on it, and I left it on there so that his name's on my bike too. <laughs> and, uh, if anybody wants a, a custom-made seat, uh, you know, of any dimension or shape or form, Rodney's your guy. He's he really can make things happen with a sewing machine.
0: Well, you, you give me his information later. We'll, we'll slap that up on a website as well. Get that, great. Get there. Yeah, great. Um, yeah. As far as it goes for the necessary parts that you needed to do on this bike. I have to imagine you may have had to fabricate some of your own.
1: Some. Yeah. Um, there has been a bit of a cottage industry that has sprung up around uh, custom building bikes and cafe racers in particular. And so a lot of things are available, but like I knew I wanted a perfect line, what what I call the bone line to run from underneath the bottom of the headlight under the, the bottom of the gas tank, continue on right under the seat all the way to the back. That's gotta be a perfectly straight line. And the whole, that is like the spine of my whole build is around that thing visually. Right. And the gas tank on a GS 550 and the 752, frankly, of, of this era uh, has just a slight dip to it where it meets the seat. And once you take that seat off, it's not exactly straight. And so I had to fabricate uh, a different mount for the back end of that gas tank, and um, you know I had to fabricate the seat. Of course, now you can go online and buy a cafe racer seat with the hump on it in ABS plastic or fiberglass or whatever kind of molded material, and then you got to make it work for your bike. But then you're you're stuck with the dimensions of that seat, and I was particular in that my my mission included using something called the golden ratio or what's sometimes called the divine proportion uh, in the build of this bike. And the theory was that if I make my design decisions around that ratio, that formula, that the result will be uh, considered beautiful by the most people. And so that was like a theory that just demanded a test and I made the whole bike that test. And, um, so, and, and there's a history in art with that. Uh, you know, Leonardo da Vinci used the golden ratio when he built the, or painted the last supper, all of the dimensions around that painting use this ratio or there's a, a, another artist, um, I don't know if he's Danish or Northern European anyways. Um, uh, Mondrian, no, he's, I think he's Belgium or French, Mondrian. And he did something called Mondrian's Composite. And it's just colored squares and rectangles, but using that ratio the whole way. And, you know, it's hanging in the modern museum of art. Um, used that ratio, and I needed that seat to end at a particular place because of the measurement of the gas tank. So then the math said the seat must be this long. And then the hump of that seat must start at this dimension and there was no way i was going to buy something online that fit all of that no, math no, perfectly not. so thus i had to uh fabricate the seat and you know i like i bought smaller little two inch uh speedometer and tachometer gauges but they don't have any sort of way to mount to a gs550 particularly so i had to fabricate a bracket and mm-hmm. paint and make those fit and they need to be rubber isolated because they they can't handle uh, a lot of vibration a lot of instrument gauges are rubber isolated and so things like that and uh, the exhaust I used some of the stock exhaust but then different exhaust uh, mufflers uh, that are louder and have a richer deeper tone and uh, had to weld some pieces onto the original headers to bring those two together and make it all fit so yeah, there was some machining, and you know, had the drill press and the grinder working, and angle cutter, and <laughs> had <that's> some <laughs> fun. Sparks flew, and and the welder got pulled out, and
0: it was a good time. Wait, there's, there's some satisfaction. There's, there's a lot of satisfaction when you create something like that that you can actually put to use.
1: Yeah, yeah, there is, and to know that, you know, okay, so I purchased this part or that part, but I, you know, I'm not going to make a really really cool tachometer from scratch yeah. in my garage it's not gonna happen and uh but yeah to know that i've created that paint job myself and i can see my face in the thing and it's just it's shiny and it's durable uh there's a huge sense of satisfaction in that
0: absolutely now from
1: start to finish how long did it take you to build this bike Started in November of 2016, and I finished it here in, what, late January, uh, early February of this year. Oh, wow. No kidding. So, yeah, three years, five months. No. Something like that. <laughs> I think that's right.
0: At, uh, we, we have a, maybe you're familiar with the term in, 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 in recording, in the recording industry. When you're recording something and you're mixing, uh, it, the, the phrase is, you're never done mixing, you just give up. Now, yeah, you, have right. you reached a point did you reach a point where you go like I, I can't do anymore i'm done
1: well that's it you know uh vintage motorcycle you're never really done um i'm always going to have to go back and tend to the little things on a vintage bike like this and, yeah. and all yeah. vintage bikes are that way and you become first you're the builder and then you're the custodian and <laughs> uh you know you gotta yeah. You got to take care of it. And I'm going to hang on to this bike, uh, for a while because I just genuinely like riding it. It it has a, so you do ride it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I rode it before I customized it. So I had that, that sense of what this bike felt like and I loved it then. Um, but now three years plus without riding it, um, I, I got to missing that feeling. And now that I'm back on and I'm itching to get on it some more and it's got a nice, you know, I twist that throttle, and the power comes on good and strong for what it is. It's yeah. a 550, but it's linear, you know, it's a nice straight pull all the way through and a and, uh, huge sense of satisfaction that I got those old carburetors to run that good. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, I'm going to hang on to it for a while, but at some point I think someone else should probably become the custodian of this thing into mm-hmm. the future. My, my daughters don't have interest in it.
0: And I'd Aww. rather it
1: be in the hands of someone that really loves it. Yes. And and I don't intend this to be the last bike I build. Uh, I intend it to be the first bike I custom build.
0: Oh, there you go. And now how have you, have you so you I assume you've ridden it since you finished it?
1: Yeah. A little, and then the COVID nineteen lockdown happened. Ah. So um, I've had it out oh, I think there's a hundred miles on the on the clock now.
0: Oh, no kidding, really. So you, yeah. ha- so you haven't had, even had the chance to bring it to any bike shows or any events yet, have you?
1: No, and I there was two coming up this spring that I was looking at and had them in my sights, and they got canceled because of uh, the uh, lockdown. So, yeah, that was one of the, the things I was really looking forward to. Wow, but, wow. you know, more shows will come, and I'll I'll get it there at some point. Sure. Now,
0: so let's talk about your YouTube channel, uh, Urban Monk TV. Uh, what can yeah. what can viewers expect to see on that channel
1: well uh mainly it is helping you know i i I know there's guys watching my channel that know their way around a toolbox and and they appreciate just watching another guy you know it's like growing up in the neighborhood you always found that guy wrenching on whatever it was he was wrenching on, and you just like a magnet you were pulled to his garage and you're hanging out and and that was fine nobody you know shooed you away it was we're going to hang out and work on the engine. Um, so those guys are there. And I, I think that's really the kind of experience you can have on my YouTube channel. Uh, while that isn't a familiar one to people younger than us who didn't grow up with that. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what it is. But it's, uh, it's got the detail for somebody that wants to do this themselves. Sure. But may not uh, initially have the confidence to, to, uh, to just dive in there. Um, if you follow what I do and you really watch it, you will get that thing running again, you will ride it and, and, and you'll have fun, you know, building your own motorcycle and have that personal sense of satisfaction. The other thing I do do is I use quite a few tools and I, I tend to buy the cheaper budget tools because, um, budget, budget, budget and so there's always a question in somebody's mind like okay this paint gun is so cheap can that really work and i buy it and i use it and i do reviews on these tools and does it really work or not and uh most of the time i'm pretty impressed with how it functions for a do-it-yourselfer at home in his own garage yeah uh and most of my reviews are pretty positive that way i don't get paid or sponsored by anybody for any of this stuff and a lot of the tools frankly are from harbor freight because they're they're available everywhere uh and and those are the the budget tools out there but um you can find that and and if i genuinely didn't like something i i say so um and then the other piece is just uh vstrom maintenance you know i've got a lot of guys that uh, they sold a lot of vstroms yeah um, if I'm going to do something on that bike, I share that too, but, um, that's mainly it for now. There will be another custom build project coming up. Uh, my ability to go shopping for one right now is, uh, ha- ha- hamstringed by COVID-19. And-
0: well, you still have eBay and, you know,
1: um,
0: <laughs> yeah. and all those I opportunities there.
1: I just can't physically go there. <clears throat>
0: right. This is true.
1: And I'm not supposed to be within six feet of anybody, you know. <laughs> Um, uh, and I genuinely don't want to bring home something to my family and, and get sick. So, yeah. um, do you have any yeah.
0: idea of, of what you're up to next though? What's going to be your next project? Do you, do you have an idea?
1: I, I got a couple ideas and so it will somewhat come down to, uh, what I find out there for the, yeah. what I'll call the donor bike. And, and if I find the right deal, um, I'll, I'll go ahead and share my ideas. So one is I already own my childhood first street bike. I bought another CX 500 in 1982 that is sitting in my brother's garage. And uh, that's up in Minnesota. And so I need to get that thing down here. Yeah, That thing is in such a uh good condition that i don't think it deserves to be cut up and turned into a custom bike project i think it's worthy of a restoration and uh but the stator is out on it it's not charging and in that particular bike that's at the back of the engine so it's an engine out experience to uh, okay to, to do that. And, uh, a lot of CX 500s are running around out there and the 650. And, uh, I think a lot of people would be interested in that project, pulling that engine out and replacing that stator and getting sure. that charging system working again, and then just clean the bike up. Uh, and then I'll probably sell it. Um, then the other one I have growing up in, uh, Fargo, maybe this is a book. Um, this so there was a air national guard base there at hector international airport and these guys had a there was a fighter squadron that flew the f4 phantom which was just a i know monster (laughs) of an uh, airplane it was just all about like um it was the coolest thing because it was such an american idea that more power is better you know they just put these huge <laughs> engines in this thing and and uh, expected it to go I think Mach 2.2 this thing will do it's amazing and I grew up with the sound of those things going off in the air and the sonic boom once in a while and uh, what I came to learn later in life is what these guys were doing they were, they were the dads of my classmates at school and they would get they'd have their duty, they'd be out there sitting on the, you know, like firemen waiting for the call and then they'd get scrambled and they'd go up in the air and fly up over the Arctic from Fargo. And what got them up there was the Russians would be sending one of their uh, bombers over and they did uh, uh, what we called on our side, uh, checking the threat and so the Russians would send over a bomber. They knew when they were within our radar, they would start a clock and, and count the time that it took for us to be within intercept range and record all that data. And they were doing it constantly. Yeah. and bringing and both sides were bringing that data back home yep. to their, their leaders. And those data then would drive strategic planning around World War III. And, you know, do we have an advantage here? Well, maybe, I don't know. What what does the data say? And um, I didn't know that that's what they were doing. I learned that later in life. But that was the Cold War was like right there in my hometown. Yeah. And this fighter squadron, uh, it's a long story, but I I think that's why there might be a book here. There was a, a particular leader, commander of that squadron that ended up, the squadron being called the Happy Hooligans. And... The Happy Hooligans ended up being kind of a, a famous group among military folk for what they did, and especially their weapons loading people were the fastest, and the uh, they won something called the William Tell Award every year. Wow. And um, I thought, why don't I build a bike that looks like one of those F-4 Phantoms with the Happy Hooligans logo on it, as a tribute to those guys? Because now that whole the Cold War is over, that whole mission is gone. The Happy Hooligans are still there, but they fly like Learjets to, to fly uh, generals and nice. brass around. <laughs> wow. Okay. Holy crap. Yeah. It's just not the mission it no, used to be. Not. No, it's not.
0: Absolutely not.
1: And, and I'm thankful. You know, the Cold War is over. I don't have to worry so much about being vaporized every minute. Because right. we knew we were a target Fargo, and we were going to be gone like that. But uh, anywho... Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that idea is brewing in my head. And, and I'm thinking of a big, beefy bike, you know, something 1,000cc that would go with uh, <laughs> with that big F4 that had two huge General Electric engines in it. And
0: <laughs> the big J79s, I remember those.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. You're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so how can people learn more about you and what you're doing?
1: Well, I think, you know, the, the one-stop shop is Yep. and from there you can find a link to my book on Amazon, from there you can find a link to the YouTube channel Urban Monk TV, uh, and you can find uh, events, uh, things like, you know, this podcast that I'm doing with you right now was on the website, and uh, so announcements of things that are happening before they uh, before they happen.
0: Right. All right. Uh, now, any advice or tips to those who might be thinking of creating their own Mister Corton?
1: Yeah, um, I, I, I would say four things. There, uh, one, have a mission statement ahead of time. Like, just have a plan. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, so many projects don't get finished because they didn't have a plan to begin with and uh and and yes we live in a chaotic universe and things happen we didn't foresee and we end up getting off our plan sometimes but without a plan we're so much more lost when we do get knocked in a different direction then uh, at least we had our bearings to begin with and so i think having you know a uh, a plan and a mission statement set out and then set your budget and just stick to it um, because they can be a bottomless pit uh, a bottomless money pit sure if uh, if we allow them to be and just set our expectations right at the front end like okay am I building something that I'm really going to go race and compete with do I need to have an 85 horsepower engine now making 120 you know really you know Those kinds of things. Have those conversations with yourself. Um, I would say definitely, because we do, as you mentioned, have the benefit of the Internet. Do your research ahead of time. Sure. and, And, okay, I have this vision in my mind. So what kind of bikes would fit that? And spend a couple of months looking at what's out there and what you can afford, and then will it work, you know? And, and can I find parts suppliers for a 1969 BSA, you know, in boxes? <laughs> uh, or should I buy something that they sold 350,000 of them every year and there's still parts available today yeah. for this? Um, you know, my bike is over 40 years old, but you'd be blown away how many parts are still available for this thing. It, it's it's amazing, frankly. Yeah. Because a lot of them are still on the road. Um, and then the other pieces, uh, you know, don't listen to what other people say. Keep your vision. Unless those people are being positive and have good things and supportive things to say about your project, right? Uh, then just tune the rest out. Sure, Cause absolutely. everybody's got an opinion and, uh, some of us understand that we have opinions, uh, but we understand that other people don't really care what those are necessarily, uh, unless we've been asked.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Very true. <laughs> Very true. Uh, one last question for you. Favorite tool in the, in the shop.
1: Favorite tool. Um, There's kind of a handful of tools that I would say you've got to have to do a custom job, but um, I can just about reach it from here, but i got to take the earbuds out and the microphone. The angle grinder really comes in handy. Uh, You cut things. You grind things. You put a flap disc on it and surface it, and uh, that's a big must-have tool, and they're not that expensive. Yeah. Um, but I used the crap out of that, and 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 I know you asked me favorite tool, but then the Dremel rotary tool thing. Oh, my God, man, I love my Dremel. Holy crap. It was in my hands a lot, yeah. you know, because there's little nooks and crannies, too all Dremel. over bikes dremel's a great tool oh my god yeah. yes yeah well urban listen well, I, well, you do some uh engraving work on, yeah well uh, you know what? It, it's dry. etching
0: it's all etching work i do to do i etch my yeah. cr- chrome work and all that and i'm not done in fact bike is back on the lift and uh, we can talk about that later but uh so i still got more etching to do and hopefully i'll have that finished well now that i got all this downtime.
1: You yeah know, right. I, I can I can finish it up. That's my plan. Well, what I saw there looked gorgeous oh, and uh, just a nice expression of your work is yeah. great.
0: It's a it's it's a very time intensive. It's like anything that's artistic. You can't rush it.
1: Yeah yeah.
0: You just can't just building a bike. You can't rush it. You have to take your time. You have to yeah. be patient with yourself.
1: Oh god, you hit the word patience. There, I'm sorry. My new favorite tool is patience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's Use one. it I have often. A drawer in the toolbox for that. <laughs> Use it
0: often. Yes. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks. I want to th- don't go anywhere. I want to talk to you afterwards. But thank you very much for joining me here on a podcast. You are an absolute wonderful joy to speak to, and I love to love hearing you. all your stories. Thank you very much. Likewise.
1: Thanks thank for you. having me.
0: You're very welcome. Thank you very much, and we'll uh, talk to you again soon.
1: All right. Take care.
0: So thanks for joining Urban Monk and I here on the podcast where we talked about building bikes, his book, and his YouTube channel, and everything you need to know about doing all that. To learn more about Urban Monk, you can go to urbanmonktv.com. I will put links in the show notes and, of course, on the Motorcycle Man website. Hey, don't forget to check out our fellow podcasters, YouTubers, bloggers, and fellow vloggers out there whose links you will find on our links page. And there's many more out there. All of these outlets and many more do great things to promote our, encourage our sport and passion. So this has been the Motorcycle Men Podcast. I am Ted, your host. Thank you for listening. And remember, we say stupid crap so you don't have to. Enjoy your ride, kids.